Dotnet Rocks episode 941 with guest Stephen Forte. Recorded live Monday, December 9th, 2013. This episode is brought to you by Telerik, offering the best in developer tools and support. Online at telerik.com. And by Franklin's.net, makers of Gesture Pack, a powerful gesture recording and recognition system for Microsoft Connect for Windows developers. Details at gesturepak.com. And now, here are Carl and Richard. That's a good rumble there. You know what? I don't think it was Mrs. O'Leary's cow. <laughs> I think it was these guys well, that started the Chicago back. fire. Good 1800s callback. Yeah. Uh, maybe their grandparents. None of us were born yet for yeah. that. Maybe their great-grandparents. Details. Great Details. Hey, what's up, Mr. Campbell? Well, here we are on leg two of yeah. this crazy U.S. road trip. This is the RV-free leg because driving an RV in the Midwest in December. You know what else is dumb? <laughs> Flying around in the Midwest in December. Just degrees of problems. Degrees of problems. Our risk of landing upside down in a ditch relatively low on an airplane. So for those who don't remember what happened in the winter in December of 2013, about a week before we got here, there was a huge ice storm that swept through the country. It started in the West, went down through Texas, and just made itself up to uh, where I live. Right before I got on a plane to come here. Nice. So I just barely made it out of New England to get here. And we are just literally missing this storm by about a week. So, so we whoever got, planned it, uh, the road trip, you know, kudos to them. We and, got lucky. Yeah, we got lucky. Well, today in Chicago and tomorrow in the Columbus and thir- Wednesday in St. Louis. It's fun. And then we're in Texas. And what could go wrong in Texas? <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> Texas was among the hardest hit in yeah, this storm. Sure. So hopefully they'll be thought out by the time we get there. All right. Hey, man, roll the music for Better Know Framework. All right, buddy, what do you got? So uh, it just dawns on me that um, .NET is uh, enjoying a renaissance. I, I, I'm not going to disagree with you, but why do you say that? And I think it's C-sharp, really, that's enjoying a renaissance. Mm, okay. Let's, let's call it, you know, because C-sharp is, by, is sort of taking over where .NET left off. Mm-hmm. You know, if you think about what survives after .NET, it's C-sharp, clearly. ASP.NET is going strong. You know, even in the enterprise, WPF is going strong, but C-sharp is reaching outside of the Microsoft ecosystem as, you know, our friends at Xamarin are, are proving every day. Mm-hmm. And uh, it just keeps getting better and better. So I find it great that people are asking me sort of these fundamental questions about the .NET framework and about C-sharp and questions that I hadn't thought about in a long time, such as how do I know if I'm connected to a network, and how do I get my local IP address? Ah, great questions. Yeah. So it turns out there are ways to do this in the in the .NET framework, and I rolled all that up into a function and put it on my blog, and it's a very simple function. First, it checks to see that you're connected to a network, and then it gets your local host name, gets all the addresses, that the IP addresses that are associated with that, goes through them and it, it finds the first one that's an IP address, an IP4 address, 
and returns that in a function. So basically, it's just going to return a string, the string version of it. Right. Okay. So it'll return an empty string if you're either not connected or you don't have an IP address. Uh, and that is at tinyurl.com slash getyourlocalip. So there you go. Good one. Yeah, it's pretty good. Just get your local IP address. Yeah, can't go wrong and, with that. And, uh, you know, and I fo- found it useful, actually, because I've been doing a lot of work with SignalR. Oh, right. And SignalR is just one of these... You remember I was talking to you guys about magic? Talk about magic. SignalR is freaking magic. And this is just a way to stay connected. You, you know what I love about sockets? It's just raw communications. Well, SignalR is like sockets that works everywhere. And it's one API for every client. Nice. And just think about that. Persistent sockets. So works in JavaScript. It works in JavaScript. It works in a console app. It works in WPF. It works wherever, uh, wherever you have. It works on an Android or an iOS device. Yep. It's just great. You just say, I, I want to be, I want these events and they just happen. So, Beautiful. uh, yeah. So doing all of that stuff, sometimes you need to know your IP address. And that's what I got, Richard. Who's talking to us? I grabbed a comment off of show 928. And that's the one we did with Fred George when we were in Ordev. Yeah. In Malmo. Yeah. When he was talking about programmer anarchy. That was awesome. Because I thought it was such a great name, too. But, you know, Fred's been doing this a long, long time. Yeah, he has. And he's uh, he's a bit of a troublemaker now. He's always been a troublemaker. Without a doubt. And this comment comes from Tim Griff, who says, a Good show. To me, it raises the question of why project managers have manager in their job title at all. Where I work, our project managers have similar roles to what was described in the show and ultimately don't manage the people in the team. They're just part of the team. So why do they have manager in their job title, but other people don't? They are managing the project, but developers are managing the code and yet are not called code managers. Hmm. Isn't that interesting? Yes. I always like the name supervisor, too, like you have supervision. (laughs) I am the supervisor. I see things. Yeah. Supervision. No, I'm with you. You know, it's interesting. The the other implication of what he's saying here is somehow having manager in a title puts you in some kind of superior position. Sure. Which I don't see as true... In my work as a project manager, in fact, every successful project manager I've ever seen... Just try to stay out of the way. Well, they're in service of the developers. Right, right. You know, the, the goal here was to get the code written. Anything you can do to help get the code written right is yeah. a good thing. And yeah. that one of those things is don't bug the developers. Exactly. But uh, there are more. there is more to it than that. So, uh, Tim, I'm totally on board. I'm with you. Project dudes. How about that? Instead of manager. How yeah, about project developers? Works. Project developers? Oh, yes, because they all are developing the project. Sure. As opposed to developer developers? Yeah, software developers. Uh, absolutely. Okay. All right. So, Tim, a .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you, and if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, just write a comment on the website at .netrocks.com or on any of our mobile apps. We have them for Android, iOS, Windows Phone 7 and 8, and Windows 8, and those apps are built by Diatom Enterprises. Who'd love to build you an app, just go to diatomenterprises.com. Diatom Enterprises. That's right. Yes. Uh, but before we go any further, I need to tell you that Pluralsight provides comprehensive developer training online. We all like Pluralsight here. Yeah? Woohoo! Make some noise for Pluralsight. They have hundreds of hardcore developer training courses authored by MVPs and industry experts, still releasing over 40 new courses every month and offering a 10-day free trial, giving you 200 minutes of access. 
with a wide range of developer topics, including iOS, Java, Android, everything web, and anything and everything Microsoft. Try Pluralsight today. Subscription plans start at just 29 bucks a month. And that brings us to our guest, Stephen Forte. Mr. Forte is the chief strategy officer of the venture-backed company Telerik, a leading vendor of developer and team productivity tools. He's the founder and executive director of Mach 5, a Silicon Valley-based startup accelerator, and co-founder of Accelerator HK, Hong Kong's first startup accelerator. Involved in several startups, he was co-founder of Triton Works, which was acquired by UBM, uh, London, UBM.L, in 2010, and was the chief technology officer and co-founder of Corazon Incorporated, which was acquired by Wanted Technologies, and was also co-founder of the New York-based software consulting firm which was acquired by Wanted Technologies in 2007. Prior to Corazon, Stephen served as the CTO of Zagat Survey in New York City, acquired by Google in 2011, and was also co-founder of the New York-based software consulting firm, the Aurora Development Group. Stephen is also a certified Scrum Master, certified Scrum Professional, PMP, and also speaks regularly at industry conferences around the world. He's written many books on application and database development, uh, has an MBA from the City University of New York, is also a board member of the Scrum Alliance, an avid mountain climber, uh, leads a trek in the Mount Everest region every fall to raise money for charity, and after several years as an expat in Hong Kong, Stephen now lives in Silicon Valley with his wife. Well, you know, you're clearly not qualified enough to be a guest on this show, so you might as well just go home. <laughs> Holy crap, is there anything that you haven't done? Um, I haven't been a host of .NET Rocks. That's true. Would you like to be? You know, I would like to be one day. Well, we can make that happen. <laughs> well. Big round of applause for Stephen Forte. Thanks, everyone. So you've obviously led um, several successful companies into acquisition, and uh, I remember hearing the story that you, um, um, I think it was the Zagat survey, you sort of saved them from... Uh, a terrible Java implementation in the very early days of .NET and uh, got them scaled up and uh, out of the darkness. And from there, your career just sort of t took off. That was actually pre-.NET. Uh, yeah. I came in the door and they had uh, all these bunch of d uh, a middle layer built in Java. And I won't really call Java the problem, but we rewrote it in, goodness, I think it was like VB5 or VB6. This is the late 90s. I mean, it was a long wow. time ago. Yeah, That was a long time ago I heard that story. Probably 10 years ago. Over 10 years ago, yeah. I'm sure. Yeah, it was probably about 1999 when I... But lately you've been into this uh, whole accelerator thing. Well, for, for those who don't know, what is an accelerator? Sure. An accelerator is specifically for companies that are very early stage. So usually two, two, two guys with an idea. And they'll apply to an accelerator. There's lots of them around the world. And an accelerator will provide a small seed investment somewhere between 20,000 and 30,000 US dollars. But there's many different models, but this is kind of the, the template version. Okay. And they'll put you through anywhere between a 13 week program and maybe as long as a six month program where they teach you how to build a concept of a, of an MVP, a minimum viable product. And they'll teach you how to engage with customers and do marketing. And, and at the same time, you'll be building your app. At the end of the accelerator program, you will then have a, um, a demo day where you get up and you make a pitch to a room full of investors. And wow. the pitch is about five minutes long. So it's a very fast pitch. Sounds like a reality show waiting to happen. Why? I, I would love to see a reality show based around accelerators because having run accelerators, 
Um, there's a lot of drama that goes on behind the scenes. I bet. Yeah. And to give you some color, I ran Hong Kong's first accelerator a couple of years back, and we did our demo day in CNN's uh, Asia headquarters in Hong Kong. They lent us the space. Wow. And CNS let, CNN lent us all this great AV equipment, and we recorded it. But we were there the day before doing the, um, you know, the dry run and, and going, through the, going through all the presentations. And I told everyone that this was actually a reality show, that it wasn't an accelerator. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, was told, I totally had them going. And my program director wasn't in on the joke, but he's another oh. New Yorker. So he was like right up on it. And he was like, oh, yeah, yeah. We got the release forms for you right in the back. And one of the guys was like, that means like in week 12 when I had that little meltdown, like my wife's going to see that on TV. Like people really oh, thought no. we were serious. <laughs> I mean, we were in Time Warner's facility, yeah. right? It was so it's totally, totally plausible that that could totally be going plausible. on. Yeah. <laughs> so the, the, these, um, the programs are, are training programs, I guess you would say, the, the, but they're not training in technology per se. They're, they're definitely not training in technology. Um, training, I guess, is the right thing. It's actually mentor-driven. So all okay. these accelerators will bring mentors in to speak with the people, uh, work with some of the teams one-on-one. Some of the larger accelerators that might have a batch of you know 20 companies, 30 companies, those mentors really can't work one-on-one. So they'll make a presentation in a, in a room such like this, and they'll and they'll go and you know use powerpoints and things like that. So are they mostly talking about um what like you said a minimum viable product like how to position a, an idea what makes a good idea hashing out the idea itself and the concept of, of building your company iteratively. Okay. So in essence, I like to call it agile development for marketing people. Oh, neat. Yeah. It's called customer development. It's been a, to- oh. a coined term by a Stanford professor named Steve Blank, himself a very successful entrepreneur. Oh. And um, so all the accelerators will teach the concept of customer development, which is, you know, very loosely is kind of agile development for marketing people. It, yeah. it teaches you to, you know, do things in small iterative cycles, collect that feedback, measure that feedback, and then kind of lather, rinse, repeat. So what if you're a developer that may have put out a product and, you know, maybe open source version one and gotten some feedback and had it out for a couple of years, and now you just want to maybe take it to the next level. Are you, is this like the perfect time for you to go to an accelerator? It's a very good time for you to go to an accelerator because you've probably got a lot of feedback from other developers, and now you want to actually kind of you know, get it into the market and try to make some money. So the program itself will help you go through that process. The reason why they call it an accelerator is they said, if you were going to work on this during nights and weekends... You know, you might get, you know, as much done in the 13-week accelerator program that you would get done in a year's time if you're sure. doing this nights and weekends yeah. and things like that. What's really cool is that it's all deadline-driven. You have to go do that five-minute presentation at the end, yeah. and people freak out about that. So what happens is it really, that, that deadline really forces people to kind of get you, things done. You say it's a 13-week program. Is that like five days a week? You know, this is all you do for 13 weeks? Yes, it's a full-time program. Really? And most of the program is self you know, self-guided, where there, most programs will offer a co-working space for everyone to work at. So everyone comes to the co-working space every day. And then, you know, at set points during the week, you have check-ins. Like usually there's a big meeting at the end of the week. So we would make everyone um, get up and do kind of a scrum at the end of the week. Yeah. And we would say, you know, here's what we did as a company. So not a developer scrum, right? Okay. You know, here's what we did this week. Here's what we're doing next week. Here's what we, you know, here's kind of the problems that we're facing. And kind of that public shaming, fear of being publicly yeah, shamed yeah, yeah. as if, you know, what do we do this week? Well, we just went to the bars in Hong Kong and drank a lot. Well, you know, that Why might be cool here? in week number one, right? <laughs> but after yeah. two or three weeks. Why are you here exactly? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So, so would, in, would teams basically bring, would, would, would teams go as a group or uh, do you see 
groups of one? You know, how, what it's, does it vary? It's very rare to uh, admit a group of one. We, we tried that once. Yeah. It didn't work out great for us um, or the group of one. Yeah. Um, because once you go through this process, it's very hard to maybe attract the, the other folks. Yeah, I can't we, imagine. We brought in teams as large as four. And teams is, the average size was probably between, probably about three would have been the average size. Okay. So two, three, and four. Mm -hmm. And it's usually like one marketing guy or business yeah. guy and, you know, one to two technical people. I got Sometimes it. Sometimes we put a team of all technical people. We have one team right now going through, well, all four of them are technical people. So it's trial by fire for them. Yeah, huh? pretty much. So they're wow. learning all these new concepts as they go, which is great. And that's a great benefit for technical people. Sure. Do they bring you the team or do you help assemble teams? They bring the team 99.99% of the time. Um, we help assemble the team if they ask us and if there's a problem, but we try to stay out of assembling the team itself. I mean, aren't they, these guys want to go on to have a business together, Correct. obviously. So yeah. you don't. So it's better that they probably knew each other yeah, in advance. Sure. Actually, the team is one of the key things that we look for. We, we did one accelerator that was virtual and we did it for Windows 8. And um, one of the things is we narrowed it down to three or four teams. And then we really kind of had the idea of who we wanted to work with, but we interviewed them because we said, hey, if we're going to be working with you guys for the next X number of months, we want to get to know you. So it was actually more learning about them than their, they were kept, they kept pitching us the idea. And we said, no, we're sold on the idea. We want to learn about you guys. And what sold me was they're doing a second screen application, which is another great benefit of doing an accelerator or any kind of mentorship for startups. You get to learn about all new, cool, hip, trendy things without actually having to doing it yourself. I'm like, second screen, what's that? And apparently <laughs> yeah. it's the formal name for watching TV while browsing on your iPad. <laughs> simultaneously. Right, That's screen. called second screening. Yeah. And um, so these guys were big movie freaks. So I said to them, list me your top three movies, favorite yeah. movies. And it was all like, you know, Star Wars, Matrix, all that kind of stuff. I'm like, okay, you guys pass. <laughs> I wasn't too surprised. That's what I got back from a group of developers. You haven't mentioned Eric Reese's The Lean Startup. Uh, Is that's that sort of the Bible of this practice? So I mentioned Steve Blank. Right. And um, I might as well tell the story because, uh, you know, the listeners of .NET Rocks will appreciate this. Is the I'm sure most people here in the audience and also um, listening at home have heard of the Lean Startup. And to answer your question directly, the Lean Startup is pretty much the Bible of how we do things. It's the, the rapid iteration of kind of getting an idea out in some, you know, right up in front of somebody, and then kind of going back, taking that feedback and keep going. But let me just kind of add to that is we actually encourage people to have non-perfect software solutions to go out and test. You know, that's the concept of the minimum viable product. Right. And so a great example, if you're building, you know, the next Instagram, that's um, not really a great example, but if you're building the next Instagram, we'll tell you, just go and like manually put some pictures on a page and go show it to people. Like don't go build Instagram, right? right? So I would tell people that a lot of them were building the maximum viable product. Um, they were actually working for, you know, if you're coding for more than four or five days, you're probably building something too big to go out and show a customer. Do you, would you say that a, a PowerPoint slideshow is the minimum viable product then? It, it, it can be yeah. if, it's, if it can measure a user's behavior. Sometimes we have people do MVPs without actually writing any code. So one team was building a travel application and they said, well, we're going to be map-centric. We're going to give people instant map-centric itineraries. So you say, I'm in Chicago and I'm in Chicago for 24 hours. Click here. And I'm interested in this topic. So I said, and, there, and their assumption was, we're going to go and find people on the street and they're going to download this app and then they're going to use it because they happen to be in Chicago for the day and they don't know what to do. So I said, why don't you go, go find those people? And they said, oh, but it's hard to get the app on their phone. There's this, there's friction, there's that. Right. We haven't built anything yet. I said, 
print out a map, right. like a yeah. Google map with pinpoints on it, yeah. and print out on a piece of paper the itinerary and go show it to them. Yeah. That, is a, that is a minimum viable product. Got it. So something that you can just give them the idea, even if, it, even if everything is pre-programmed or pre-printed, if you will, just give them the idea of what they're going to experience when they use the app. Exactly. Well, isn't the goal here just to create, do we know that people want this? Exactly. And what's interesting is I know a lot of people listening here are like, well, this is great startups. How does this, you know, how does this affect me in my office today? I'm working at an enterprise. And what I find fascinating is people in the enterprise are starting to use this concept. There's a, there's a chapter in the middle of the lean startup that's about, okay, I'm in a big organization. How do I take what I've just been described? You know, the first half of the book is very exciting about all these methods of developing very quickly and doing customer-driven development, essentially. Now, since it's, hey, you're in a big organization, this is what you do to take that practice and still operate it within a big business. Yeah, and what's interesting is in the introduction to the book, they actually, in the introduction of the book, the Lean Startup, they say that. They mm-hmm. say, these methodologies can work if you work in government. Right. If you work at a big, large, co- you know, government. What moves slower than the government, right? Yeah. Um, anyone here work at the government? <laughs> okay, one or two guys are raising their hands. Anything yeah. moves slower than the government, guys? No. Uh, shaking, yeah, shaking yeah. They are in firm agreement with us. Yes. We will buy you a copy of the Lean Startup to give to your boss. Maybe we'll just mail it to the president. Yeah. He's probably learning about Lean Startup methodology right now. He probably is. <laughs> Doing code reviews. Yeah. Imagine being a developer in a code review with the president of the United States. Yeah. <laughs> That's, let's just think about that. Yeah, let's just <laughs> Code faster. <laughs> yes. What are you, the president? Yes. <laughs> and Reese also did, uh, they were talking about minimal vial product and so forth. Like, here was a web page that didn't actually do anything, but it had a set of links on it for different features. Then when you clicked on the link behind it, it said, this is coming soon. But the main thing they were trying to do was collect what people clicked on. What did people care enough about to actually click? Yeah, this is very famous. So, um, one company that was actually based in Hong Kong for a while when I was living there, and then they're actually based out in the Bay Area where I live now, they did something very brilliant. They're, they're a company called Buffer. And what Buffer lets you do is, you know, feed to your schedule tweets, in essence, right? So you can say, hey, I'm going I'm to tweet once a day at 12 noon, in addition to my regular rapid-fire tweeting, but making sure that your audience in other countries and other time zones can get these tweets, and what they did is they put a video or, or a description of the service on the website. That's all they had. So one web page and then a button that said, click here to sign up for the service. And they collected the people's email address. But then what happened is once the confirmation came back and says, oops, Buffer doesn't really exist yet. We're sorry. We're almost ready. You know, we will send you a link to the beta when it's ready. They didn't even have a beta at the time. So they realized, you know, certain percentage, what they did is they predicted, they said, we're going to drive some traffic using AdWords. We're going to drive some traffic to the site and see how many people click through. They were satisfied with that click-through rate. They kind of said, in order for us to be a viable business, we need a conversion rate of X percent. Once people started clicking through, they said, the next thing we're going to do is ask people to sign up and pay, but they didn't have a product yet. So it said, you know, click here to spend $9.99 a month for this service. And people were clicking, you know, saying $9.99 a month. And they got that same message once they filled in their email. They said, oh, sorry, you don't need to give us your credit card because we don't actually have a product yet. Well, that sounds like bullshit to me. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be pissed. It's actually the minimum viable BS. 
Right. <laughs> I'd be I'd be mad. Well, so interestingly enough, is you are the archetype of every team I've ever mentored, and I, I've worked with probably about sixty or seventy startups over the last three years in the U.S. and in Hong Kong and throughout the world. And I I beg them, I plead with them, I say, please, just do something like this, and they go, yeah. that's going to be bad for the brand. Our Got brand it. is about trust and honesty and customer relationships. I go. You know, last time I checked, GoDaddy was like, you know, $8.99 for a URL. I'm like, go and buy a new brand and put it in there. And they said, oh, but, uh, you know, I know that's so much work. I go, really? Because GoDaddy will host it all for you and use a Google form. <laughs> Speaking of <laughs> brands we don't like. <laughs> <laughs> Did I just say that out loud? I believe yeah. you. Are they a sponsor from .NET Rocks? No, they're, they're, no, they're not, actually. <laughs> <laughs> okay, insert other we cheap web hosting <laughs> atmosphere here. Yeah. Um, but I, I also think you deal with the issue of uh, we're not the customer. Correct. And and we're sensitive to things that they aren't sensitive to. The, you know, the, the reality is you didn't break a promise there. You're still making the promise. You're saying, well, if you want this, we'll build it. We just haven't built it yet. But well, but you did say click here to pay with your credit card. Click, the, click here. Oh, I'm the, sorry. Did I say that? Oh, I didn't mean click that. Click here. But then again, you know, Tesla can I have lied. you buy a car and deliver it a year later. Yeah. So, oh, I mean, but they, they that's say, a lot more expensive they say than click buffer. here to sign up for the waiting list. They don't say <laughs> click here to add to cart. So, so, you know? so, Carl, you are like every single person I know, the that grumpy goes old through, man. That yeah. go, grumpy old man. I'm talking like yeah. the 22 year old hipsters give me the same, you oh, know, really? the, yeah. the same flack. I had one guy building something on Bitcoin. And this was before Bitcoin's meteoropic rise. It was probably um, literally an order of magnitude lower in cost. It was about sixty to seventy dollars. Mm -hmm. And um, he was all about trust, you know, because all this hacking going on in Bitcoin. Yeah. And we begged him, and it took him about five weeks for us to wear him down to to just put up a simple page that described his service yeah. and a Google form to collect the names. And you know what? Yeah. It didn't harm his brand. It didn't harm you know. But like you, he wanted it to be perfect. Well, you before know, it went I, out. I, I guess it's know, not I'm the PVP, the perfect viable product. I, I'm projecting because you know, if I came out with a product, like I have a product, Gesture Pack, right? And if I did that f because I'm associated with a product, that that would I would get called on BS. But if I if a comp if I just started a new company out of nowhere, nobody knew it was me, and I wasn't using my my likeness or my show to promote it or whatever. Yeah, I would have no problem, you know. Yeah. Like uh, you know, if it was if it was not associated with me at all. Just create a new brand, right? Right. Go and to you're, some you're essentially creating a, a brand that isn't associated with anybody and you're just trying to see what people want. Go to some hosting company not named GoDaddy, register a URL. Yeah. And then <laughs> But you also get back to the idea of you know the real reason you put the price tag up in there is to try some prices. How well, many people click if it's nine ninety nine a month? How many click if it's fourteen ninety nine a month? How many people click now, if it's ninety nine? Well, I watch I watch a lot of startups struggle, and we've graduated a whole bunch of teams in our accelerators, and some of them have no revenue. The buffer guys went from idea to two million dollars in revenue in about eighteen months, right? And they used these techniques because on the day they launched their product. They already knew how much they were going to price it. They knew the freemium model. They knew their conversion metrics. They knew how many free users can support. We would, would probably convert to paid, and how many paid people they needed to support. You know, the, the batch of free free customers. So it worked out very well. Yeah, and Dropbox neat. did the exact same thing. The most famous example of what Call calls, you know, the bullshit viable product. Yeah. Um, Dropbox released a video 
okay, of what the Dropbox service would do. It was basically just like a flash video of, that someone invented yeah. and said, sign up here. And they had something like 5 million people sign up and they said, oh crap, we better go build this product. Yeah. And it hasn't hurt their brand, right? Last time I checked their, you know, the leader in the kind of cloud storage. But you can see, the alternative here is you take somebody's money, possibly your own or your friends and family, or you find an investor and you build this and then find out if actually anybody wants it. Well, that, that's the bad alternative. Right. Exactly. And it's all well and fine if somebody wants it, then, then you're fine. But if they don't want it, that's really kind of really a problem. Bad. And, you know, this is where we start seeing it happening in corporations. To kind of think outside of our technology wheelhouse for a minute, I forget who would, uh, whoever owns Mr. Clean, but they went out there and said, let's go out there and build like a strawberry Mr. Clean or some other kind of version. Oh, you know, I heard this story. Yeah. Yeah. And you know that Mr. Clean in Europe, by the way, is called Mr. Proper? Because I told the story in Europe, and they and, and they're like, "What the heck is Mr. And they Clean? Go, what is Mr. Clean?" So I Googled it, and they said, "Oh, it's Mr. Proper." And I was in French, and they're like, "Monsieur Proper," or something, something like that. that. <laughs> and for some reason, every time I said "Monsieur Proper," everyone laughed. Like you guys did. It's like, it's like it's like automatic. But they went out to go build the next version of Mr. Clean, and they followed kind of the principles of the lean startup. It was actually a consultant that did it for them. Huh. I think it was you know Procter and Gamble would be my guess, but I don't know who the the brand owner. So is. they basically had a click here to order Mr. Strawberry clean or whatever. Well, they and went out and to started. See how many people they started on it. even earlier than that and did customer interviews and kind of went in and said, "Would you want?" And they actually came up with something completely different and came up with the Swiffer. Oh, yeah, that's how the Swiffer was born by huh. the attempt to build strawberry Mister Clean. Oh, yeah, out the, comes yeah. the Swiffer. Yeah, right. <laughs> but in essence, that is kind of flexible, agile development for marketing people. Right, I mean, it's it's the principles we take, you know, in Scrum and Agile and XP Kanban, yeah. right? Yeah. And it's those principles put out to actually building products and building a, a business around it. And you can learn all this by reading the book Lean Startup. Yep, the Lean Startup is a great book. What's what's great about everyone in the audience today is you will um, the book will resonate with you, but you will have a natural inkling to like it because the guy who wrote the book is a tech geek. Like Eric Reese is a tech geek. He was a certified Scrum master. Like we know him well at the Scrum Alliance, and um, he was directly influenced by this guy Steve Blank. Uh, I'll tell you the story is Steve Blank kind of the, the you know the the guy who coined the term customer development invested in Eric's company. And he said, under a condition of my investment in your company, you have to come attend my, my lectures at Stanford. And, you know, most entrepreneurs that raise money, they say things like, you have to guarantee your house. And he's like, I have to attend a class at one of the best institutes in the world? Sure. After the first class, he comes up to Steve Blank and says, I don't think I need to attend this class anymore. And Steve Blank's like, you know, WTF, you know, you said you were going to come to the class. He goes, I know all this already. This is agile development, yeah. right, just for marketing people. Right? And that's when Steve Blank said, we need to talk. And the rest is kind of history. Awesome. Yeah, it's totally awesome. So collaboration between the non-technical people and the technical people on outcomes. Concurrent thinking in different, different worlds. And, the, and so customer-driven, the customer-driven part is the equivalent of the stakeholder you've got on the phone the or sitting owner. in the room yeah. going back and forth to write the code. The, the challenge here is a, a stakeholder is deeply invested in building software. Right? Like they're already committed to it. It's probably their budget. They're already in on it. In some ways, uh, these external customers are like that too, but it's much harder to engage them. Hence the just low friction website sort of approach to things. I mean, it, that to me is the distinction here is how do we get a hold of the stakeholders, the guys who are ultimately going to buy our product 
and, and, and validate things. Yeah, I mean, it's not a one-to-one -one mapping to the product owner, which is the analogy I think you were just kind of logically, the conclusion you logically were drawing. Right. But in essence, that's why we do these kind of minimum viable products that, you know, kind of piss Carl off so much as, you know, <laughs> fraud and BS and everything else you called it. Um, but in essence, that's how you reach those stakeholders because you're absolutely right, Richard, when you're building software in the enterprise and your stakeholder is like the VP of finance or the VP of marketing, even though they're technically, you know, the the stakeholder, and they they're compensated, right, by building this product as right. part of their their bosses. Like, hey, where's the blah 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 system that you know, those developers are building? That's your bonus. That's your bonus. But they are, and you always get this game between the customer customer slash stakeholder, right? Because every customer is effectively a stakeholder, but they're also this is who's going to buy your product if you get it right. But building something that's not you know, an internal application at your organization, by definition, you're going to have, you know, anywhere between tens or hundreds or thousands or millions of those stakeholders. Right. right? If you're building, you know, something for social media or anything like but that. But they're also a captive audience. You can make pretty crappy software and they still have to use it. When you're building things internally in yeah. the enterprise? Oh, that's why I thrived in enterprise development <laughs> <laughs> during my career. <laughs> but I just like the idea that you would interact with folks that way to try and build the best possible product. Isn't that sort of what, you know, what Kickstarter is, really? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's basically saying, I have an idea, here's my video, send me money. Right? I mean, I mean, but it's not being, it's not being so sort of, uh, I would say almost deceitful about it, right? I don't know if deceitful is not the word. You ever hear something called Instacube, which raised $700,000 a year and a half ago, and, and, and basically at one point said, oh, sorry, uh, we spent all that money at the factory and we can't build your cubes. Yeah. Um, so what happened? Before we get to Instacube, yeah, I just yeah, want to okay. directly answer your question. Is sure. Yes, for hardware projects, uh, Kickstarter is very much that lean startup. Um, I actually mentor at a hardware accelerator, so they take companies building hardware, put them through the exact same model. They provide them about $25,000, $30,000. They fly them all to China for 100 days, 111 days, inside of a factory, and they take them to all the factories. And then at the end of the program, they put it onto Kickstarter. Huh. Yeah. And back just to conclude the thought about Instacube, what yeah. happened there is happened? they realized that uh, Steve Blank likes to say, um, no business plan survives first contact with the customer. <laughs> a guy named Cyril Epsterweiser, who runs Hackcelerator, likes to say, no hardware project survives first contact with the factory. Yeah. Yeah. Stuff is way harder to make than you think. Especially in small batches. And far more expensive. And how many times have we seen this in, in crowdsourced, in Indiegogo and so forth? It's like, they, they, yeah, I know I collected your 25 bucks, but it's cost me 30 to build it in right. the end. And then they have to go out and seek external investment, and they're, right. so they're already or, starting in the hole. Or something, like some way to actually dig themselves out of Sell that. Sell a kidney or something like yeah. that. Yeah, but hey, we, I mean, there, was some, there was a terrible story, and I sh I'm sure I could look it up, about a guy who was just trying to make an innovative iPhone case. And everybody loved it. They loved the idea. It was like a $20 thing. And then in the end, when it actually figured out how many he could manufacture, it was $30 a piece and ended up in a class action lawsuit against all the people who had bought that $20 case. Right. But in the process, in order to discover that, to get that point, he spent a lot of money. Yeah. So, you know, and, it, and Kickstarter doesn't guarantee anything. Well, Kickstarter is very similar to the Dropbox video or the Buffer page that I was talking about right. with Carl a moment ago. Yeah, yeah. You know, so the kick, I mean, for every Dropbox and Buffer, there's hundreds of startups that failed. Right. Right. So, but they, but they, and they are setting a price in the beginning that you're presuming will actually get you the product. Right. So when we run the teams, and we've graduated 30 teams now at Hackcelerator, when we run the teams through, we really coach them on go get your bill of materials, go talk to the factory, and then, you know, go double whatever estimate you got, yeah. and then put that, and then divide by that and put that on Kickstarter. 
Hey, Richard, you know what time it is? Uh, it must be that happy time again. That's right. It's time to write a nasty gram to Instacube, try to get my left kidney back. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Nothing. Yeah. Crickets. crickets. I hear crickets. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's time to give away a Telerik DevCraft complete collection to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But before I tell you who the winner is, let me tell you that Telerik Icinium lets you develop, test, and publish iOS and Android apps from a single code base using only HTML5 and JavaScript, all from within Visual Studio. The capabilities include comprehensive back-end as a service running in the cloud, integrated support for Kendo UI and jQuery mobile, as well as integrated testing and deployment. All this makes Icinium a robust end-to-end mobile app development platform for .NET developers. Telerik Icinium is available on a subscription basis and is now part of the Telerik DevCraft Ultimate Collection. Start a free 30-day trial of Icinium with support at icinium.com slash dnr, and that's i-c-e-n-i-u-m dot com slash dnr. And don't forget to thank Telerik for supporting .NET Rocks. All right, buddy, who's our winner? Today's winner, and let's give him a big round of applause, Gareth Evans from Buckinghamshire in the UK. Congratulations, Gareth. Buckinghamshire. That's a good one. And, of course, that is almost every, just about everything Telerik does, except, of course, the Icinium uh, uh, subscription. But right. everything else it, that Telerik does in one box, it's a $2,000 value. We give one away every show. And uh, if you don't know what we're talking about, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world. Every December, we give away $5,000 worth of technology to one lucky member of the fan club. We've done it twice. Mm-hmm. We just gave away $5,000. We did indeed. Worth of stuff. Andy Smith. Andy Smith from the UK is our winner this year. He won a, uh, a development environment uh, for mobile and tablet. Yep. And uh, we'd like to ask our guests, of course, Mr. Forte, if you had $5,000 to spend on technology right now, what would you buy? I would go to uh, every minimum viable product on the internet and try to sign up. Oh, really? <laughs> until, I got, until that $5,000 went to zero. No kidding. <laughs> that's, a, that's a lot of Kickstarter projects. That's too. a lot of ki- yeah. I actually have a Kickstarter um, addiction, which actually is quite painful because my, the stuff now is starting to show up because yeah. I've been buying it for years. And my wife is like, what is the blinky tape? <laughs> I have tape that blinks. And each light on the tape, it's a meter long of tape. And it has little LED lights like Christmas lights. And you can program each light. Oh. Multiple colors, when it blinks, the intervals of blinking. Blinky tape. And my wife was like, I'm in the room doing that. And she's like, what are you doing? And I'm like, but I'm you can... programming my blinky tape, dear. And that's dear. exactly what I say. <laughs> Come on. And then, and then I program, I plug it into the Arduino, and I start making it blink based on commands I sent to the Arduino. And I feel like a really rock star coder, because I'm writing C code, right? I've written C code since like the 80s. No, right? wow. and, and writing C code, and, and she's like, "Just get this crap out of the house." Right. Yeah. So maybe my <laughs> maybe my five thousand dollars, Carl, you said had to be on technology, yeah. would be on storage for all of the Kickstarter projects. So it would be I a bet. shed for the backyard. It would be a shed in the backyard. Awesome. Yeah, that'd be awesome to hold all those Kickstarter. Yeah. Projects. So do you, do you get anything out of these Kickstarters uh, projects except for the? Besides the product, is sometimes you get a stake in the company? A Kickstarter does not provide crowdfunding for equity. It yeah. only provides the, the... Actually, it's not even a pre-order. It's called a reward. Like you yeah. backed this project, and if the project is successful, the reward is the actual product. And there's legal reasons why they do that, which 
not being a Laura. Did you uh, get an emotive headset? By the I, way, the, I did the not, second actually. one. I should. Yeah, I had. I've got mine on order. Uh, Richard did, did yep, one as well. I ordered one too. Because you guys between, know what this is. If I, if I can wear the microphone and the Google Glass and the emotive <laughs> headset, I will be an alien. <laughs> you are an alien yeah. already, I think. So let me tell people what this is. E M O T I V is the company, and they basically have a way that you can control your computer with your mind. And I'm not kidding. Um, basically, it reads your brain waves. It's a thing, you know, that goes on your head. And it yeah, has, I wasn't kidding when I did this. Yeah, the other one, you had to, like, put jelly on it, and it kind of... You did. You had to put jelly on the electrodes, and it was kind of a pain, and took a lot of care in feeding, and it stuck on your head like this. And you programmed it. You trained it like this. You simply think of something... And you, then you record your brain waves when you're thinking of that thing. And then you do that a few more times and a few more times to train it. And then when you think of that thing, and the vent fires and told you that you're thinking of that thing. In C sharp. Yeah. <laughs> Come on. It's freaking but, cool. But if I was doing a lot, I'd just think like pizza and... Yeah, beer and pretzels would be coming up all the time. Well, so it could be screen. anything. That's the beauty of this thing is that you could think, you know, of the letter C, and the letter C shows up on the screen. You'd think left, and you know, your screen scrolls left. So it's up to you to to make those associations and what that means. But you think of something, and that event fires and tells you what you. Just like a speech recognition thing would recognize your speech, this recognize your brainwave patterns. Imagine a guy with so ADD. The, yeah. Oh no. <laughs> That's a lot of letters. That's uh, you need a lot. You need a quad core, at least octo core. You need that. the re, you need the reactive extensions to catch those <laughs> events. Well, we did a show on the emotive headset with uh, Guy Smith Ferrar. Yeah, but he was mostly talking about reading yeah, his brainwaves depending on what music he was listening to and how it altered his thinking. Yeah, the, and he was trying to get to a place where it's like I like that my mental state now. What music was that? So it would figure out what music to play to get him into the right mood to program. So the second headset, the headset that they're working on now that Richard and I both donated to, is very simple. It only has two or three, and it doesn't require any jelly or anything. And it, uh, you know, it looks more like Jordy LaForge visor kind of thing. So that's, that's my cool Kickstarter. Yeah, Kickstarter is really just a pre-order. Right? It's not, I mean, technically it's a pre-order, but yeah, it, they call yeah. it a reward in case you're... In case it doesn't come through, it doesn't, doesn't like work the out. Like Instacube. Yeah. Well, and I've had yeah. it, I've had a few, and they always have thresholds and things. And I've had a few that didn't get to the threshold and died. But so far, I mean, I have a bunch of stuff out, but I have a bunch of stuff that have arrived too. Mm. Lots of stuff goes wrong. Do you need a shed the in the backyard? Yeah, it's not getting that bad yet. But it's well, it was bad like that years ago. <laughs> I, I didn't need Kickstarter to fill my house full of gadgets. <laughs> <laughs> I never needed help with that. Yeah. yeah, I'm just ordering miles and miles of blinky tape. <laughs> Line the whole house with it. <laughs> I wonder if we need a Kickstarter for features on projects. I mean, you were talking about minimal vile product and, and these approaches to sort of test what people are interested in. I mean, what I like about Kickstarter is it makes people vote with their money. Yeah, so I think, you know, internally at an organization, you have a lot of features. And what always happens is you have, you know, 4,000 man years worth of features right. and eight developers. Yeah. Right? So they want, they want everything. And I've always thought is, why couldn't we do it that way? Why couldn't we say, let's just say, you know, we have, you know, 10 developers, you know, that's this equates to this many developer hours per year. 
and put that on something like a Kickstarter and say, hey, business, let's just take 20% of those off the top for maintenance and maybe 10% off the top for, you know, maybe, you know, projects that come up without any warning and let the people spend their marketing budget that way instead of trying to, um, you know, instead of trying to just dictate it from the top down, right? Letting people actually vote with real Real dollars in this case. It would be, it'd be whatever budget you have or take the IT budget and allocate it as a percentage across the organization and let people go that way. Um, I saw a guy try this about 15 years ago at a dot com and I think it was actually a priceline.com and he took M&Ms and the M&Ms was just a representation of all the hours and he took all the red M&Ms out and said, that's for maintenance and then gave the M&Ms out like equally to like the head of marketing, the head of sales, and then watch them trading M&Ms and saying, oh, well, I'll, if you work on my project, I'll give you two M&Ms, but then give me something else that's not related to technology. So it facilitated those conversations. Because at the end of the day, agile development, lean startup, all it's really trying to do is to get us geeks, which rather lock ourselves in a room and have pizza slide under the door and code come out, to get us antisocial people to go be social and talk to other people. <gasps> I know. I mean, crazy talk. Well, I, I try to argue with people. They go, why can't developers be more social and be more extroverted? And I say, this is the one profession that rewards being an introvert. So people go to this profession precisely because they don't want to deal with other human beings. And people don't. And then what do they do with the good developers? They promote them to managers. So now you have an, an introverted manager managing a group of introverts. I mean, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Whatever you guys feel like, it's okay. You, know, you just work and I'll go into my office. It's all right. Send me a text message. But, I mean, does this really come down to building the right software, like stuff that people actually need? Build the right thing and build the right thing correctly. Yeah, absolutely right. That's, that's disturbing how difficult it is to do. Well, all of this actually comes, believe it or not, from manufacturing, mm -hmm. right? So back after World War II, the Japanese did, didn't have the scale, both the capital and the resources, to compete with the mass production coming out of Detroit. So what they did is they said, let's do things in small batches. So where in the U.S., they would make, you know, 10 million blue, you know, Chevy trucks. And then at the end of the year have the fire sale. The Japanese invented just-in-time manufacturing where they, they, did is, they did it pulled through the system. They said, we're only going to make as many blue Toyota trucks as people order because we can't afford the inventory. And they stumbled upon this. And back in 1986, a whole group of people uh, decided that this was a better way to design a car they, at Honda. And they, and they wrote an, a Harvard Business School article called The New New Product Development Thing, which was, they called it Scrum, right? Which then about, you know, 10, 12 years later, a bunch of us adapted for software, to, you know, for software development. And what I find really interesting, if you, you know, the story we told at the beginning of the show with Eric Reese is that... You know, first lean manufacturing affected agile, right? You know, the agile manifesto signed, you know, February, right? You know, 2012, I mean, 2002. And what I find interesting about that is fast forward, um, agile development affected the lean startup, right? So you have lean manufacturing affecting agile development, agile development affected the lean startup. And now the lean startup is affecting the enterprise, which is, which is making developers in the enterprise far more agile. So it's kind of coming full circle, except I don't think the enterprise is going to go affect the, um, I don't think it's going to go full circle all the way back to the automotive industry, but it's kind of gone full circle insofar as now all of these are derivatives of each other. So we're trying to solve similar problems in different domains. You're talking about Japan and the success they had in the eighties in manufacturing and well, even before that, but, uh, the differences in the culture also played a big role in that, don't you think? Like, 
it was very, very common in the U.S., you know, for a company when they're going with a, a part, a business partner, find the, you know, the, the lowest bidder, you know, find the lowest bidder. How can we get this the cheapest or the fastest or whatever, where Japanese would have a business partner and they would commit to that business partner, you know, and if, if they couldn't, if they, they had to raise their prices or lower their prices, that's okay. Or if they ran out of inventory and they had to wait a week, that's all right. We, we're not going to sever our relationship. We're, you know, the relationship was very important. So while and, I agree, uh, I, mean, I agree with you that a lot of, um, a lot of that was affected by Japanese culture. I'll disagree, um, because let's, let's just look at a typical, let's just do the typical stereotype American, right? They're probably loud and obnoxious like me, right? Mm -hmm. You know, at least that's what I'm told. And, but the, but the stereotype of an American in a factory, if there was a problem, would an American or a Japanese person pull a lever that says, stop the line, right? The stereotype is that the Japanese are very polite and do what they're told. But yet the lean, you know, the, you know, the lean manufacturing culture took these Japanese that were very by the book and very kind of collective saying, no, we will just follow the rules and empowered the lowest guy on the assembly line to stop the entire assembly line. You press that button, Toyota's not making trucks for right. several hours. Like right, you say, I found a defect, right? Let's correct the defect, and then let's correct whatever led to that defect. Wow. So that's actually very anti-Japanese culture. So, so they, they had the, they had a big change of the, the change the yeah. culture. So yeah. the lean manufacturing benefited from some aspects of the Japanese culture that you described, Carl. But then they actually went and changed the culture yeah. itself, which was which was pretty outstanding. This guy named Tashiono who implemented it all in Toyota again out of you know mother. I mean, you know, necessity is the mother of all invention. Yeah, yeah. Maybe we should ask uh, the audience if anyone has a question for Steve. Go ahead. How do you protect your IP? How do you protect your IP? How do you protect? <laughs> Hire expensive lawyers. Next question. <laughs> no, Wait, no, hold on. Let him. I'm sure he had more to say besides how do you protect your IP. Let's say you go to China for your manufacturing. Let's go. You're, you're doing uh, lean startup within a group environment. Say at 1871. Or something like that, and you've got you've got IP that is basically situation destructive because it changes the way people do things. So you're going to China for manufacturing. You've got IP that's situation destructive because it changes the way people do things. How do you protect that? Well, as we all know, in China, there's what's the politically correct word to say, challenges yes. um, in getting them not to copy your things. So Especially the, where software is concerned. Uh, so, let's forget about China, but let's just... And anywhere. But presenting your IP to other people yeah. and being able to protect your, and your forward yeah, position. Yeah, I think, I, and I think what you're really talking about is in the accelerator bottle where you've got a half a dozen companies and they're all presenting essentially to each other their idea what about the IP around those ideas? Well, two things is the, is the first is when in, in any accelerator, you're not going to have two companies in the same domain space. So meaning is you're going to have one, one company building, like I just think of one of our batches. We had a company building mobile apps for, you know, moms and dads and, you know, helping kids with their regiomelial approach to parenting. And then on the other end of the equation, we had a team that was building like some form of, you know, simultaneous English to Chinese Twitter translation app, right? Those two don't really compete. Um, how do you keep the IP together? Part of that is a conversation between the founders first, right? Meaning is the IP is owned by the company. And then some people try to protect the IP um, using patents and things like that. I don't recommend that is because when you go out 
I presume this is where your question was leading. You're doing the minimum viable product and you're going and showing people, you know, the video of Dropbox or you're showing them the buffer website. How do you protect that IP? Well, to some degree, you don't because you've already, you've already put it in the public domain and you've kind of put your stake in the ground saying, this is our idea. And you don't really protect it for someone coming and rip you off because if someone's going to build a different Dropbox, like Google Drive or Box or whatever it is, I mean, that's just how it works. So you have to decide how early you want to go out and make it a very big public splash because it's very difficult to prevent someone from being inspired by your idea. Good question. Another question up there. Yeah, way in the back. Yeah, what's the book you'd uh, recommend uh, beyond the uh, actual What's the book that you recommend beyond the Lean Startup? No, no, beyond Agile. I believe you're oh. talking about, it's called The Lean Startup by Eric Ries. Yeah. Oh, beyond that, okay. Another question, yeah. MVPs uh, in the business business space, how do you, uh, if, if at all, perceive that being different from the consumer MVPs. How do you how do you perceive the MVPs in business to business space to be different from the consumer space? An MVP in business to business is quite different, right? Because in a in a consumer space, you can just put out the Dropbox and the you know the the buffer like I was describing before and get people to sign up. If you're building in something for an enterprise or you're doing a B two B, what typically happens is you're not going to get to them through Google AdWords, right? You're going to go sell to those people through a typical sales channel. So what we've had people do, and because we had a team in, in our previous batch, and she was building something um, that was a B2B solution. So she would go and pitch with mock screen mockups. And she was, you know, scared, you know what? She was scared for everything you can possibly think of being like, what if they say yes? What do they say yes? Well, guess what? They did say yes. And this was week one. She had nothing, right? She had balsamic mock-ups. And she was afraid that by the end of the 13 weeks that they would have to be implemented already, right? That was six months ago. They still haven't implemented, right? She's built that. She has built every feature she promised in that initial thing and like dozens more features, right? So the cycle on that B2B is, um, is so slow for people to actually sign up because you have to go through all these layers of management. Just do the classic kind of snake oil salesman job, right? And just show them the mock-ups and say, this is in development. And they're going to demand that you be ready in four weeks. And my advice is say yes, because four weeks is really like 15 weeks or 20 weeks, right? Because it just takes them forever, <laughs> the biz dev people forever. You heard it so here you first. heard it here, lie, now, lie. And anyone... <laughs> And Carl, if anyone is in a B2B environment and <laughs> they go with vaporware and they say two weeks and, and the big organization, I mean big organizations, organizations over like, you know, 5,000 people. And if they come and, and they say two weeks and it really is two weeks, tell them to contact me and I will give them a free Telerik license or whatever yeah, they yeah, want. Because that would be amazing. <laughs> because that, I, will, I will stake my reputation yeah. on the line that yeah. business, you know, big organizations don't move that yeah, fast. Yeah, true. He's right. One more question, we're out of here. Anybody? Yeah. Have you tried the emotive headset with the Star Wars game? Have you tried the emotive headset with the Star Wars game? No, but oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> Have you? Have you? Yes, it is lots of fun. So you basically can use the Force? Yeah. <laughs> the Force through C-sharp. Yes. Oh. Are you guys all going to go get an emotive headset now? Is this, is this the coolest there thing There is in the no world? try. There is only C-sharp. Yeah, that's right. All right, well, 
Big round of applause for Stephen Forte. <laughs> And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks! Oh .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a